0: Nino Ricci's novel, Lives of the Saints, garnered international acclaim and won a host of awards including the Governor General's Award for Fiction. It started the trilogy that was completed by In a Glass House and the Gilda nominated Where She Has Gone. It was also adapted for a miniseries starring Sophia Loren. Ricci's novel, Testament, was the winner of the Trillium Award. His most recent novel is The Origin of Species, which won the Governor General's Award for Fiction in 2008. He lives with his family in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Pleasure to
0: be here. We're here to talk about not your fiction, but non-fiction. This is part of a series hosted by John Roth and Saul. These are short biographies, and you've been chosen, I assume, to, uh, you were chosen, or did you volunteer? Uh,
1: Well, I was approached to be part of the series, and I actually asked for Trudeau. Partly because I had been doing research on him for my novel, for *The Origin of Species*, where he appears in a sort of cameo role, and also figures as a significant father figure for the, the protagonist in the novel, a- and partly just because I, I've always found him a fascinating figure. And there was a lot of new stuff coming out at the time uh, as his archive was being opened up. So that he was a person who immediately came to mind when uh, John approached me to be part of the series.
0: When I saw that you had written the, uh, the biography, I automatically sort of connected the Italian-Canadian community, and I've always connected the Italian community with a sort of reverence for Trudeau. I'm not sure why, but perhaps you could uh, explain yeah, and, it. Yeah,
1: um, and it doesn't really come up that much in, in the book. and. Uh, I think John, people, Penguin also thought that would sort of be my my uh, angle, uh, but it wasn't really my own attachment to Trudeau. Had very little to do with that. I I do think there was a particular kind of uh, attachment between the Italians and the Liberals, and, and Trudeau came to embody a certain spirit of liberalism that uh, it became identified, I guess, with liberalism for for many Italians, and that was partly because many of them associated uh, liberal policies toward Immigration with the Liberal Party opening you know, up a new
0: life for them, and they were yes, in power at the yes, time. And yes, yeah.
1: you know, even though historically the, the Liberals have been all over the map in terms of immigration, and you know, at times were quite anti-Southern European immigration, yeah, the Jewish. Uh, yeah, so that the record is quite mixed, and yet somehow, uh, in in the Italian mind, uh, they associated the Liberal Party with open immigration policies, and the Conservative Party with uh, more restrictive policies. Not entirely correctly, but that was the the connection that happened. And I think Trudeau in particular was a figure that appealed, I think, not only to Italians, but to a lot of immigrants because he seemed to speak his mind. And he seemed someone you could trust because he didn't seem a power seeker and he seemed willing to, to say what he meant. And I think people responded to that kind of straight talk, particularly immigrants who didn't want to feel that something was being put over them and who didn't want to feel that there was this establishment, I guess in English Canada, this Anglo establishment. Yeah, he was an
0: outsider, of course, too, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah.
1: yeah, they saw him in, in, in a kind of outsider status that they could identify with
0: hit one of the things that I think many Canadians love most about Trudeau, loved most about Trudeau, and that was he was passionate, but in that passion you could feel truth, even though there were all sorts of masks that he wore. When I think back on how he responded to certain things that really upset him and annoyed him. You you compare that to politics of the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. and it's also contrived and phony, and they can't say a word without 25 pollsters Very telling nice them stuff. what to say. It, it mm-hmm. seems to me that's one of the key reasons why people love him so much.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in part he was lucky to be in that era and not in this era, uh, where you know the soundbite. Sort of rules, and, and politicians have had to become adept at controlling that. Uh, I, I think even in his own time, and it comes up in the book, uh, he was often quoted out of context in ways that misrepresented what was going on as during the the, uh, the time of the War Measures Act and the October Crisis, where he would make what seemed these very cavalier statements, mm-hmm. but set in context, they were part of a long argument that he had been making. But well, and
0: also he'd taken a lot of the quotes one of them from the Globe and Mail, one of his most famous ones.
1: Yes, the uh, the bedrooms of the nation quotes were the paraphrase of something that appeared in an editorial. But even in the case where he was quoted either out of context or in those snippets, they were always phrases that ended up in some way working for him mm-hmm. and, and portraying this this uh, image or this mask uh, that actually I think made him appear to be a very effective and straight shooting politician. And I think. The tendency now is to try and say as little as possible <laughs> or to say nothing, I mean that, that's sort of the, the hallmark of the current government is don't speak to the media or speak selectively. Uh, I think even Chrétien, I mean I, I saw him once at a, a media scrum and basically he had one phrase that he repeated over Alerting, and over. Staying on
0: message. Yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. And it was essentially stonewalling, you know, Yeah. I'm not going to say anything that can be misquoted yeah. or misconstrued. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's funny with Trudeau too that I mean the, the fact that he he may have said things that other people have said, or as you say it's, they were taken out of context, and yet it's as if the general public had a perception of him as being a genius mm-hmm. and and therefore whatever he said, we fit him into the mold that we wanted him to be
1: I think that's very true you know I think from the outset something in him clearly uh, led us to invest that kind of confidence, it was partly the fact that he seemed not to want power, and he was very good at playing that game. Almost being
0: pushed into it, when really he did want it.
1: Certainly his archive shows that it was something that had been in his mind from a very young age and that in fact that had been his chosen career path from his early 20s was to to go into politics and and make a mark in politics but at the actual moment it seemed as if he had just sort of happened on the scene and people were begging him to do (laughs) what he reluctantly agreed to and that's a great
0: position to be in. There's a great line in the movie Gladiator where Maximus, or anyway, you know, the Russell Crowe character, is asked by Richard Harris, Marcus Aurelius, uh, "I want you to be uh, the emperor. And what do you say?" And Maximus says, "With all my heart. That's the last thing I want. I want to go home. I want to go to my farm. I want to be with my wife and children." Marcus Aurelius says, "That's exactly why I want you to be the emperor."
1: Yes, it's, it's a very alluring quality in a leader. Someone yeah. who's not there because they're seeking some kind of personal aggrandizement, but are really committed to the truth or to to doing the right thing. And and it's true. We had that we had that perception of Trudeau and I, and I think it, it worked for him partly because it was true.
0: Well uh, the other thing too is he had millions of dollars in the bank yeah.
1: He was a person who could satisfy himself in, in many different ways and in many different fields, and who was willing to refuse the prize if he couldn't get it on his own terms. And I think I think part of it was this deep pride and even a kind of fear of failure of not doing the thing that he wouldn't succeed at. So he was always careful to to lay the path very carefully to make sure it was something he would get uh, and it was something that I think he'd learned early in life to sort of structure his challenges in ways that that he would get the prize uh, but was willing to walk away if that wasn't going to happen
0: you mentioned too that his father pushed him uh, towards taking challenges and not not running away from them but facing them and uh...
1: yeah I mean as a child he was a bit sickly uh, he was not quite the manly sort of boy that his father Charles would have wanted and his father was constantly putting these challenges before him and Asking him to do things for himself, if you had a problem with the teacher, you know, go in and, and deal with it. If someone punches you, you punch them back. And or you go to the
0: gym and get strong enough so you can do exactly, that. Exactly, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, you build up those skills, and, yeah. and Trudeau became very good at that, to the extent that he began to thrive on challenges. It was a kind of drug right to him, uh, and the best way to get him to do something was to put it as a challenge.
0: And Pearson knew that, and Marchand. Yes, and they
1: used that uh, as a way of goading him forward in in power. When he first arrived in Ottawa, he he very much seemed ready to take it or leave it. It wasn't clear whether he was going to throw himself into the role uh, or just be the playboy on the hill who drove around (laughs) in the sports (laughs) car. It wasn't until people started putting it to him as, you know, there's a job to be done here, are you up to it, that he rose to the challenge.
0: That's another one of the things that we love about him. Is he's so Canadian. what, outspoken. He's uh, he's got flair. He's marries beautiful young women. He dates and starlets. and These are the types of things that you really don't associate with Canada. No,
1: no. And we responded to that. It really brought fresh air into into Canadian politics and, mm. and made it watchable suddenly. Uh, Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah to, to the majority a, of people. Yeah. Because you didn't you didn't know what he would do next. He was he was unpredictable, and that was what gave him that star quality is that you you kept waiting for him to say the outrageous thing as you said before that we we expected that in him and he usually delivered and and because he did we we gave this weight to his statements that was almost iconic
0: one of the things that actually was quite upsetting to me personally and uh, and i think at the beginning of this book you talk about the fact that that each one of us has, has our trudeau story even though I think in 68, what was more top of mind for you was Kennedy's assassination. American yes, life. I was
1: much, I mean, I was quite young. Yeah. I, mean, I was nine he, years he, old
0: when he was elected, but yeah.
1: I was much more aware of uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy than of the election of uh, Pierre
0: Trudeau. It may have been mid 70s, uh, it maybe 74, I can't remember which election it was, but I was in Vancouver. In the same day, I was able to see Trudeau on a street corner making an ad hoc kind of speech and later on that afternoon I went to see Robert Stanfield mm-hmm. and I had this impression of, of Trudeau as this wonderful, buckling hero, gunslinger and when I saw him there he was very aggressive, he was putting down some hecklers he kinda came across as a bit of an asshole mm-hmm. and then later on that afternoon I went to see Robert Stanfield speak and he was gentlemanly and thoughtful and uh, so I was quite shaken by that whole experience. I just wonder if you, in your experience or in your reading research, had a moment like that.
1: Uh, I I did. I had several uh, over the course of doing the research for this book and going over the archives and and watching footage and and often in in public situations either he seemed a bit of a jerk, very bad at, at any rate, at handling any kind of dissension and very maladroit really in kinds of statements he would make in in public settings, and sometimes just very dull. A lot of his speeches seem rote or full of platitudes or a bit abstract or not quite on message. Uh, He wasn't always the scintillating speaker that, say, an Obama is. I mean, Obama is a much more controlled and a much more convincing public speaker, Mm -hmm. I think, than Trudeau was.
0: Uh, Uh, Unless Trudeau was passionate about what he was talking about, and then I don't—I don't, I was difficult to match his skill, I, th- I think. Yes,
1: yes, I mean there were things that he was passionate about, and there were things that he really, <laughs> you know, he had to learn and he was a bit indifferent about, uh, and he, often he would know about them, but they weren't things that particularly uh, excited him, uh, and he wasn't always good in the way, I, I think Obama is someone who you know, works at presenting the whole package with the same kind of energy. Whereas mm. if Trudeau was bored, uh, he was
0: bored. <laughs> Which again is, is an endearing yes. quality. I remember watching Ronald Reagan, for example, and subsequent presidents used to talk to the, the media and call them by their first names, almost as if they were his friends. Mm-hmm. And I loved the way that Trudeau, he, he wasn't obsequious, he wasn't trying to get yes. any kind of any favors from them.
1: Yes, there was no manipulation. This was, this was the man. and. Uh, you know, if he was bored with you in a conversation, (laughs) he'd walk away. Uh, In that uh, clip that I refer to in the book on uh, Parliament Hill during the October crisis, he spends, you know, seven or eight minutes talking with this one young reporter. He completely ignores everyone else. And he just has a conversation with this guy, ignoring the fact that there are soldiers on the hill and tanks and this (laughs) major national crisis. He has this kind of debate (laughs) with this young minor reporter and you know doesn't give the time of day to anyone else and it's just he happened to feel engaged in that conversation he pursued it and and there was something there there's something very uh, attractive uh, in that
0: one one wishes for the same these days very yes. much so
1: yes i think often of paul martin in contrast paul martin junior in contrast to trudeau and martin sort of bent over backwards to meet with the media and explain things to them and it really backfired on it it just gave the impression that He was just searching for the right thing to say (laughs) in every situation. Trudeau never gave that impression. He just sort of spoke his mind and and moved on and and never looked back. It's interesting, you you know, you say you saw him on a street corner and and so many people have these Trudeau stories. One of the enduring images of Trudeau is of his arrogance and yet so many people had some kind of direct contact with him. It's amazing how present he was. I mean, he was around for a long time, but... Mm -hmm. Somehow he got out there, and somehow it was partly the people sought him out and came to see him in a way they did in others, but star out um, almost yeah. uh, but people felt that personal connection to him despite the fact that he was reputed to be uh, arrogant and and, and distant, uh, as opposed to I think a Stephen Harper, who you know very few people would feel. That they've made that kind of personal connection to him, or seen him in a in a in a personal light. I don't know
0: about that. Just I mean, this, just as it happens, about two weeks ago, I ran into him outside of a movie theater in Ottawa. Oh yes, okay. And
1: uh-huh. uh,
0: and and he exchanged thoughts on Slumdog Millionaire with me. huh. I'm nobody on the street. Uh, I
1: guess the, the jury's still out on, on that one.
0: Uh, well, again, it's a lot of it has to do with you know Harper's Harper's image. I think, and, and this is exactly what we've been talking about when it comes to Trudeau. I mean, there's who, who he is in the minds of many Canadians, and then there's who he is to those in his private life. And, and yes. in, in yes. his private life, you say that he's seen as being humble and loving and caring, and and yet, very much so, yeah. Quite the opposite in in in, uh, in his public life. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is, unfortunately, is Harper's pegged as being. I suppose the same, in, in the sense that he's, what, aloof and not necessarily arrogant. Well, know that he's exactly that. inaccessible. Yeah, well, inaccessible, but that's more of a strategy than anything yes. else, isn't it? Treating the media not as your best friend, like Mulroney tried to do, but you don't want to shut him up. You want to be able to re- reach Canadians directly, as opposed to through the filter of the media, and uh, the challenge is how to do that.
1: I'm sure you would know more about this than I would, about media strategy and I, and I'm sure that Trudeau had a lot of media strategies but there was a way in which I think that he he made this personal connection this, despite that public image he made this personal connection to so many Canadians who you know as I say uh, to this day continue to have these stories that they tell about him in this sense of their own uh, personal connection it may have been just that different era but it may also have been that that kind of charisma that came off him that made people feel that they could claim that Mm -hmm. connection. And I I don't think uh, there has been a leader since then that has successfully cultivated that kind of image.
0: I'm speaking with Nino Ricci who has recently written a a short uh, biography of Pierre Elliott Trudeau for Penguin as part of their Extraordinary Canadians series. One of the things that Trudeau, I think, was so good at was, again, I, I I think many people will be able to relate to what you say in the book about going abroad as mm-hmm. a as a young man and everyone wanting to know about Maggie and Pierre mm-hmm. and the sense of pride that people would, yeah. <laughs> would at least pay attention, even if it is in a tabloid kind of way, pay attention to what's going on in yeah. Canada.
1: Yeah, in a curious way, I think that may have been a, his major contribution to the Canadian psyche, to our sense of ourselves as, as mm-hmm. a holding a meaningful place in the world. That
0: where we're worthy of being noticed? Uh, yeah, that
1: we, we have a stature in the world, that we had it through him, even if it was through the tabloids, even if it was through the gossip columns. We were not used to being regarded in that kind of celebrity light. We were used to being the, the forgotten, the unknown the boring the boring the you know adjunct to the united states and and so on and to be recognized as distinct individual Interesting, Particularly mm-hmm. for a young person, you know, from when I was yeah. 18, 19 years old at the time, thing. suddenly I could hold my head up.
0: We talked about Obama. There's all sorts of Americans abroad now who are, who are proud to say they're Americans.
1: Yeah, which was much harder to do under, under Bush. The American dynamic's a bit different.
0: It's, it's a, sort of yeah. ironic, too, because Trudeau is, is an intellectual, and yet his cachet, at least for us Canadians, is that he's celebrated as, as, as a celebrity. Yes. Uh, that and that he's sexy, and then he dated Barbara Streisand, and his wife went out with the Rolling Stones. and
1: But the fact that he wasn't intellectual made, made it acceptable, I guess, to celebrate the celebrity. Yes. There was substance behind that, that he wasn't as flash in the pan. I thought of comparing him to Schwarzenegger, but actually, Schwarzenegger's turned out to have more substance than any, <laughs> anyone suspected. But
0: You know, Schwarzenegger gets sand kicked in his eyes, and look what he turns into. Yeah. in terms of the athlete.
1: But yeah, he um, Trudeau certainly had sufficient weight for us not to feel guilty about celebrating his celebrity.
0: It's interesting. We talked early on about bilingualism and our thwarted efforts to, to try to uh, participate in the other solitude. I don't know yeah. if it's a legacy, though, bilingualism uh, being successful or not.
1: Well, I, I think the jury's out. I mean, I think it's a mixed legacy. There are probably more people in English Canada who think of it as... You know the significant contribution of Trudeau country than in uh, French Canada.
0: Sorry, these uh, French immersion programs I mean both my daughters are, are in the, in the, they're, they're more popular now than ever before in Western Canada. It's yes. overflowing.
1: Yes, I mean there's a kind of irony there, and that I think what has attracted parents to it is the thought that it gives their children bigger brains, or it you know it, it yeah. gives them added skills that will help them get ahead in the world, as opposed yeah. to any strong desire to connect to the other solitude. You know, probably many of these parents are more likely to send their kids to to Paris than to Quebec City. But yes, it's still there. It's still a kind of ideal for many people in my generation and slightly younger. But uh, it has not moved forward significantly, I think, in the past 10, 15 years. I think it has and ironically, the place where bilingualism is growing at the fastest rate is in Quebec, and that in Quebec is seen as disastrous because it, it basically means that people are feeling the necessity to learn English, uh, and and shows the potential erosion of the strength of French. So it's hard to know whether that was. Success. I mean, I think in in principle it's a great idea, but yeah. it's it's going to remain true that if you're living in Calgary, it's hard to feel a visceral connection to the French language. So you just don't have the
0: opportunity to practice it. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's just not there. It's not part of your everyday world, and and it you, it never functionally will be. Uh, mm. But there have been some success stories, as I point to in the book, places like Moncton, which is I think. Yeah functionally uh, bilingual. Sudbury, mm-hmm. very active uh, French population there and many people are bilingual. Uh, Montreal is mm-hmm. I think probably now one of the great bilingual cities in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ottawa as well, a, a big shift from the Ottawa mm-hmm. of the 50s that Trudeau first uh, arrived in to the Ottawa of, of today. So in the places where it matters that it has happened in a a significant way and I think that is a real success and uh, it's a real success that no matter where you are in the country you feel you have the right to be represented and to be spoken to and to have services in your own language. I think that that is something to be proud of.
0: Bilingualism then is a mixed bag. You look at the economy and the deficit that we had when Trudeau left office, Yes, one couldn't say that that was mixed.
1: No, I'm a little hesitant to blame Trudeau too much for that because it was a spirit of the times. I mean, Ronald Reagan...
0: Mm. He spent it all on on the defense industry, though. Yes,
1: but the philosophy was there. The philosophy of deficit spending was in the air. I don't know
0: what people were thinking, but it wasn't (laughs) only Trudeau. A man of his times, then. Yeah,
1: and he was not ignorant of of economics. He had studied economics at Harvard and Mm the London School of Economics. You know, he knew all the theories. He was not an ideologue in the way that a Reagan was. Not that Reagan... lived up to his ideologies in, in, in some regards. And I think Trudeau's view was that economics is a, is an art, is not a science, and, and people manipulate it to their own ends, to their own agenda. And, yeah. and in that sense, there was a lot of truth, I think, in his point of view. Uh, at the same time, he did leave a, a legacy of deficit spending and a, a public debt that was astronomical in the terms of the day, in terms of what was there when he arrived in office and what was there when he left, and that in a sense we're still paying off now. I mean the national debt really dates back to the Trudeau era. And then just a last word on the economy, a lot of bad things happened in the 70's that you can't blame Trudeau for, the energy crisis, stagflation, Mm -hmm. All these new economic events, as we're seeing now, that people had never confronted before and didn't know the right answer to. And he he generally applied a, a kind of Keynesian approach of government stimulation, which involved debt, and and he had a you know a, a social policy that required him to to spend in, in in certain ways.
0: He was also very Machiavellian. He said, you know, no freezing wage uh, wage uh, price, control, price yeah. controls. No freeze, and then.
1: Yeah, and probably won the election on, on mocking the, <laughs> the conservative <laughs> position on wage and price controls, uh, and then had to reverse himself. Yeah, I think that was a very difficult moment. cost him a lot of credibility with, with the electorate. But, you know, he did what had to be done in the moment.
0: So let's look at the next large area, which would be the charter. These are the, sort of the big issues. Uh, charter, and of course, I mean, Meech Lake after the fact.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the charter, I guess, for him and the patriation of the Patriotian Constitution is certainly now seen as his big legacy and I think he would have seen it that way and it was what convinced him to return to the liberal leadership after he had retired after his loss in 79 was the hope of, of pushing that through and it's something that had been on his plate since he had joined politics, in fact since he would worked for the, the Privy Council back in 1949 uh, as a clerk, you know, the constitution had been on the agenda <laughs> that whole time. And he had come to it reluctantly in the mid-60s when he was justice minister in 67. He was reluctant to open the constitution because he thought it was a can of worms. That's
0: what he always called it, yeah. Yeah,
1: and that the discussions would never end, and he was right. But at a certain point, I guess, he just felt, well, you know, this is something that has to be done. I, I think he felt that not only in terms of trying to establish some kind of personal legacy, but as something that was important for Canada's maturity, that it seemed to him a sacrilege that we had to go to Westminster to amend our laws, essentially. And he pushed very hard for it in the early 80s and had a variety of strategies, some of which involved trying to do sort of an end run around the provinces, going to the Supreme Court and getting rulings on what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. At the end of the day, I think what happened was, although it's portrayed now as his big coup and his big success, I think it was a betrayal to Quebec. Quebec, yeah, yeah.
0: and they feel it, it even Quebec. though there's the notwithstanding clause which allowed them to...
1: Yes, yes, so they have ways around the Constitution, but he made clear statements at the time of the referendum, and in fact in, in that one speech in the uh, the, the Arena, uh, promised a renewed federalism which people in Quebec took to mean that some of their traditional demands would be met but it ended up what he meant by renewed federalism was just more of the same, more of what he'd been offering all along. And he essentially ran that through in a, in a kind of backroom deal and excluded Levesque, who who had recently been reelected, so who clearly had a mandate from the Quebec people to come to the constitutional table and, and negotiate on their behalf. And he was left out of the the final deal, and I, you know, I continue to feel that that was a betrayal of the promise that Trudeau had made in, in 1980, and that there's justified resentment didn't get back over that. I don't know though that there would have been another solution. You know, the the Meach Lake approach, which had its strong points and its dangers, was an entirely different kind of approach than Trudeau had ever promoted, and one that Trudeau could never have lived with. May have also opened up all kinds of future problems for, for the country. I, I think there's an irony in that he patriated the Constitution in a way that in a sense contradicted his aim. The aim was to you know, unite Canada, and it didn't have that effect. On the other hand, it did bring us to this kind of maturity that mm-hmm. has, in a way, spread a Trudeau vision through the country, even through Quebec, through the Charter, mm-hmm. uh, a vision of who we are as Canadians, of the values we share. I mean, I think Quebec is as much a charter province as the rest of the country, even though it never signed on to the charter. Mm -hmm. The kinds of values that are common here now and that most of the political parties support are the same kinds of values of pluralism and, and equality and rights for discriminated groups and so on that lie behind the charter and that have become now central or the bedrock of our identity in many ways.
0: Even though one of the criticisms I've heard, and I'm, we'll just, I'm just sort of closing down here, mm-hmm. but one of the criticisms I've heard is that it took, if, if you've got money, you're going to win. If you don't have money, when it comes to charter issues.
1: A lot of people are uneasy with how mm-hmm. the charter worked out and, and wonder whether it is really given power to the people or merely power to... People who can the afford good lawyers. Or power to the lawyers or power mm-hmm. to the courts. Courts are essentially deciding on matters of law that used to be decided by parliament. parliament. So yes, there are a lot of questions still hang over that but there is there, there's certainly a sense in the general population now of empowerment yes. and and that was partly responsible for the defeat of, of Meach. that people suddenly realized well wow these big decisions are being made by you know 11 men in a room and mm. what about us and you know 10 years before people might not have felt that entitlement to be part of the process.
0: And isn't that so much about Trudeau? You know, he always loved the idea of going over the provinces directly to the people. Yes, that was always behind his yeah. thinking i mean yeah. i don 't
1: think that's often emphasized, but yeah. it is true, I and mean, he was constantly trying to build in clauses into the uh, the constitutional reform that would allow that to happen that would allow the people really to to be the the breakers of deadlocks and to have more direct power and, and as a way really of Breaking the deadlock between province and, uh, and federal government.
0: So then finally, uh, we've looked over a number of the, the key issues that he uh, tackled while in power. Decidedly mixed results. I wonder if you could, in uh, concluding, give us an idea of how your opinion of him may have changed from beginning to end of this exercise of, of writing your uh, your biography mm-hmm. of him. And how, incidentally, too, how it might have affected, I know this is opening up a whole new area, but how it might have affected your work as a, as a fiction writer and a novelist.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I started this project after stuff had, had, had started to come out through the archive. And uh, you know, when I first read the book uh, Young Trudeau by the Nemnes, it, it was quite uh, eye-opening to me. Uh, because clearly the, the Trudeau of the pre-war was a much different Trudeau than we would have imagined. He was not the guy winning at the current. He was very much out of his time. Conventional. I mean, well, he he bought into a certain kind of rebellious attitude that was, however, very approved of in mm-hmm. his environment in Quebec, you know, amongst the Jesuits, uh, amongst the nationalists, and, uh, and it was it was not a very enlightened point of view. It was, you know, casually anti-Semitic. It was anti-democratic. It was xenophobic, uh, and so on. And it was a su- surprise to me to find that that Trudeau, and. I, I, I guess initially I began to think of him as, well, perhaps he was just a Machiavelli all his life. He just figured out the reigning zeitgeist and then found a way to buy into it, uh, which was in a way true in the 60s, you know, it was the era of the, the flower child and uh, and so on, and he suddenly became this this uh, icon of, uh, of of the 60s generation, sitting down with Yoko ono and it John Lennon and, <laughs> uh, and so on, the guy who backpacked through China, China yeah. and... <laughs> Uh, and all these dangerous war zones as a young man and so on. Sort of a hippie before the day, uh, in a sense. But at the end of the day, I didn't come to that conclusion that he was simply someone who tried to fit himself zealot-like into whatever spirit reigned. I saw him as someone who underwent a kind of fundamental transformation when he left Quebec. And when he suddenly became aware of the wider world and realized how parochial his views had been in Quebec and how Quebec itself, in the way it was structured, made that inevitable in a sense by promoting this kind of millennialism that people bought into and this this xenophobia that that justified the elite really in in this kind of oppressive anti-democratic power structure. And I think that was what lay behind his visceral uh, opposition to the separatist mm-hmm. and to the independentist uh, movement and to to any any form of nationalism. That he saw it as, as narrow, as ethnically based, as xenophobic, as a way for the elite really to bold to draw men up to the public to scare them uh, as a way of solidifying their own their own power. Uh, he saw it as manipulative and. He may have been overly zealous in that point of view. I, I think we're seeing in Quebec now, for instance, a, a kind of separatist movement that is not ethnic-based. Uh, people feel a kind of attachment to Quebec culture, defined broadly, that makes them feel they are different than the rest of the country and, and that they would prefer to have you know, power over their own institutions. I think it's possible for that to happen.
0: Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? The current administration just matter-of-factly saying to Quebec, sure, you can call yourself a nation. It's just almost uh, well, not a bureaucratic move, but all of the passion has been taken out of it, and uh-huh. no one seems to be uh, anywhere near as concerned as we were back in the days of Trudeau and Levesque. Yes, it's yes, funny, so it's it?
1: just sort of slipped under the under the door like that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I suspect that it could come to the fore again.
0: Depending okay. on personalities that head up parties, I would say.
1: It would be partly that, mm. yes, and uh, yeah, partly what gets stoked up by whom. A lot of it at the time, I think, was the careful manipulation of opinion by in Quebec by the the media, which was was dominated by too. by separatists and in the West by you know groups like Reform that had a, a vested interest in a kind of populism that was Western-based. I mean, it would be less likely to see that now in the current Conservative government. There's no mileage in them uh, in that kind of dichotomy, and no, no mileage for them. Uh, so it's possible, yes, that what had seemed uh, so overwhelmingly unbearable in, uh, in the 80s and 90s mm. might, might just seem insignificant now. Uh, and it's partly because, in a sense, we, we have so little to complain about. We mm. continue to function, despite mm. all the flaws in the system.
0: Judo's not. Would you say he's seen as insignificant now? Or how, how is he seen in your, I, in your final opinion? Well, I think
1: many people still see him as central because of that emotional attachment they feel to him, and because he gave them that pride in being Canadian, and represented, you know, apart from his policies, represented this kind of philosopher king, this very intelligent man who came out of Canada, and as un-Canadian as he seemed, was a total product of Canada, and was a union of so many of our different forces, and who did us proud on the world stage. And on a policy level, I think, you know, the Charter continues to... Diffuse itself into the Canadian consciousness and and define the ways in which we we think about ourselves. So he's still very much present, I think even in Quebec, one of the separatists who was very active in the 1980 referendum, I think, put it best when he said, you know, Levesque is, is who we are, but Trudeau is who we would want to be. And I think even in Quebec where there is a certain segment that truly detests the Trudeau legacy, and Trudeau himself feels betrayed by it, there's a large section of the population that really came into a sense of itself through Trudeau, that he was a role model, he was a figure that they could look up to, and, and a figure that they were deeply proud of.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to share your opinions and thoughts on on Trudeau, and, and also thank you for writing a book that combines strong writerly skills with important information.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.